and we found that he lacked every criterion for mental capacity, and that means he would be unfit for any job, let alone president. So we already knew that he would not be able to handle a crisis. He would not be able to handle defeat of an election. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Dr. Bandy Lee, is a forensic psychiatrist and faculty member at the Yale School of Medicine. She's put together two relevant books. The first, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, is a collection of essays by mental health professionals about the former president. And recently, she wrote Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul, which also talks about Trump's followers. We spoke about her efforts to protect America from Trump and how the American Psychiatric Association has worked to thwart medical professionals from discussing the former president's mental health. You should know about Bandy's work. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Dr. Bandy Lee of Yale University. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yes, I am Bandy Lee. I am a forensic psychiatrist. I'm known as the editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 37 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess the president. And I am president of the World Mental Health Coalition. I have taught at Yale School of Medicine for 17 years, uh, at Yale Law School for 15 years, and have consulted with the World Health Organization on violence prevention since 2002. Quite a eminent career. Where did you grow up? New York City. Uh, in the Bronx? Yes. Tell me a little about your background and how that kind of led to this career that you've taken on. So I was actually in the, the inner city during a violent era of uh, New York City. Uh, my father was at the New York Botanical Garden, and so it happened to be just kind of in the hotbed of a lot of violence and gang activity, and I attended public schools, until high school, that is. So I was interested in studying violence, and I did see a lot of violence around me, gangs recruiting, and there were bullet holes in my school. There'd be a memorial of a young person having died uh, every other block, it seemed. I did go to Illinois for high school, partly to escape that setting, and then returned to New York and Connecticut. What was college for you? That was uh, Columbia. So kind of this familiar setting of, uh, again, Harlem, New York City, and then I went to New Haven for medical school and divinity school. Did you study psychology at Columbia? Or no. Just I pre-med stuff? or what was Pre-med, comparative literature, and physics. Yeah. And I would assume a very good student if you were able to go to Yale Med. <laughs> yes, you might say so. Yes. And then I went to... Mass General Hospital of Harvard uh, for psychiatry residency and did a fellowship in the Department of Social Medicine 
at Harvard, uh, which is a medical anthropology fellowship. And for that, I went to East Africa, to Tanzania. And then I returned and joined the faculty at Yale. Were you a political person as you were growing up and through that, all that training? Not at all. Not one bit. My parents were academics. My mom was academic and clinical. My father used to be a botanist and so um, a scientist. Yes, I was not very interested in politics. I have a younger sister who went into politics for a little while, but that was because of rebellion against the academic family. I would think that studying violence and doing it through a medical perspective would provoke some questions of public policy and how it's tangling in that arena. It has taken me to public policy in that I um, have consulted with governments while I have been involved with the World Health Organization. I have consulted with a number of governments on violence prevention programs uh, in the community or in prisons. Particularly in this country, I have advised the California prison system, the San Francisco County jail system, as well as other states. So I I am familiar with public policy. And for a while, I was also consulting with the Institute of Medicine. But I was never interested in politics or partisan politics. Yeah. What's a forensic psychiatrist? A forensic psychiatrist is a psychiatrist who works at the interface of psychiatry and the law. Uh, So in my situation, I have uh, worked in jails and prisons for clinical work. I have um, consulted with courts and testified in cases, uh, civil and criminal, including immigration cases, as well as criminal responsibility and competency to stand trial, uh, violence risk. Those are the kinds of things I have done. I've also testified in cases on institutional violence. I once did a report on the situation at Rikers Island that uh, became the impetus for the federal government to come in and do an investigation of the violence rates there and to proposed reforms. Do I gather that you're a parent? Did you hear some children in the background? I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what I thought I heard. No, <laughs> I'm accustomed to that those noises myself. So. I, I apologize. <laughs> Usually the microphone I was hoping would mute the sound. So you also got a degree at the Divinity School? Yes. So in the middle of medical school, I felt that I needed to supplement my education with further humanity or (laughs) a humanitarian perspective, because we were so uh, immersed in molecular medicine and, um, uh, and so forth. And so I felt that my medical education would provide me with a study of the body and the mind, and divinity school would provide me with a study of the spirit. And uh, it turned out to be a very rich experience, which I have applied with patients and prisoners in ways that I never imagined I would. Talk about that a little bit. So Divinity School, to me, is about religion. What, what was it for you? So I grew up religious. I was Christian, Protestant, and then high church, if that makes sense, Episcopalian, and then eventually I converted to Catholicism. Uh, but in between, I explored many other religions, in particular Taoism, Buddhism, Judaism, and uh, even some Islam. So I wanted to get a perspective of various religious cultures as well as uh, worldviews. I considered it as much of a systematic study of the world from a different perspective than science gives you. So it sounds very academic, but that's the way I approached it in the beginning. Later on in life, it has taken on a much more personal meaning, especially after the passing of my mother. Sure. Where 
I guess you came to my attention was spring of 2017. And that was about the time I was getting this podcast together because of my concerns about what was going on in the country with the new president. What were you up to around then that that had to do with Trump? So I did mention my mother. Uh, She was a very uh, big influence in my life, vibrant, healthy, at age 70, no one would have guessed she was that age. She had um, no gray hair even at that age. And then suddenly she was struck with the same kind of brain tumor that Senator McCain had suffered and um, Joe Biden's son had suffered glioblastoma. So it comes on very suddenly and then the person is gone. That happened to me within a 10-month period. I told you about religion. I mainly used it to try to understand and and help support my patients and, and prisoner patients who often resort to religion because they're undergoing a crisis in their lives. So you could say that I was undergoing the same. And I realized that despite my believing that I had studied it and that I was giving it its due in life, I suppose, in terms of focus, I I realized that I I hadn't. So I had gone into a very spiritual space, in fact, during the campaign. Uh, My mother passed away uh, 2016 after devoting most of my time taking care of her. So I wasn't paying much attention to the campaign, except that my mother uh, was a very socially conscious and politically aware person who did a lot of work in society. And I wanted to take on her legacy. And and there was this crisis that I could recognize from a scientific and professional point of view as a psychiatrist that the president-elect was a real problem. And it was actually through prayer and a lot of reflection that it became a calling of sorts, in that it gave me the courage to drop everything and to pursue it with conviction, in spite of the fact that my uh, the establishment in my profession was saying something else that did not make sense professionally or ethically. When you say to pursue it with conviction, what do you mean? What were you pursuing with conviction? What were you doing? Trying to meet my societal responsibility using the knowledge I had and the professional competency that I had gained over my career. So I had been practicing psychiatry for about 20 years. I was able to recognize what I saw, which was a psychologically dangerous presidency, which had the potential to spread socially and culturally and geopolitically. I was hoping it wouldn't get to that point, but I saw the full potential at that time. For people who don't know, could you explain the restraints on psychiatrists around politics? Yes. First of all, psychiatry, just like any other medical field, we are supposed to bring medical neutrality to our decision-making and judgments. So it's actually not very hard because you bring a health paradigm that simply does not take much of politics into consideration. There's no room for politics, in fact. Uh, You look at natural phenomena and uh, through clinical experience, make an assessment and course of treatment. But we, of course, are human beings who are subject to our own personal biases that we bring. And so it's part of standard professional practice that we be a check on ourselves and leave those parts out and to recuse ourselves if we don't feel that we can leave out those parts. That's actually practiced regularly. Uh, Psychotherapists do it all the time. And as a forensic psychiatrist who is involved in legal cases where there are sides and either side may hire me, I'm supposed to be the objective 
arbitrator in a sense, because my judgments would not be based on the case that is trying to be made, but based on the facts and evidence and only that which I can base on facts and evidence. But also there were, uh, if I understand right, there was a Goldwater rule, uh, which a bunch of psychiatrists having an opinion in 1964 on the election that asked people in your profession to stay out of that arena, right? Yes. I had agreed with the Goldwater rule through my whole career, even though as a forensic psychiatrist, we're considered exempt. So what it essentially says is that when you're asked about a public figure, you should educate the public for the sake of public health and improvement of the community. But just don't diagnose without personal examination and authorization. I agreed with that because you essentially cannot diagnose someone from a distance. Uh, Diagnosis is a detailed process where you're uh, making an assessment in order to treat the person as a patient. Uh, And once you do the personal exam, you have to stay with patient confidentiality. So I had no problem with that in the past. But what alarmed me was the American Psychiatric Association changing that guideline with the Trump administration. Two months into the Trump presidency, they changed it into gag order, basically stating that unless you have examined the person and gotten consent to speak about them, you cannot say anything, not just diagnosis, but anything at all. There's a problem with that because that actually inhibits our ability to meet our societal responsibility. And in the very preamble of our ethics, it says we have a responsibility to patients as well as society. There's also the principle that the Goldwater rule, also, by the way, it's not a rule, it's just a guideline, the guideline falls under. And the principle is that we participate in activities that improve the community and better public health. So that's the purpose of Goldwater rules. So if sticking by that small rule harms public health and does not improve the community, you abandon the rule, not the principle. They came out and said this rule is absolute. There are to be no exceptions, even in the case of a national emergency. Uh, And that part was really alarming to me. There's also the Universal Declaration of Geneva that says that physicians are mandated to speak up against destructive governments. And that was instituted 25 years before the Goldwater Rule, after the experience of Nazism. And that that pledge is universal, whereas the APA Goldwater Rule is covers only 6% of practicing mental health professionals, that is APA membership. It arguably goes against the law, and so uh, the First Amendment, and so no licensing board adopts it. So they're not able to legitimately discipline anybody or threaten loss of their license. But since, as you said, it came out of a presidential campaign, not based on science, not based on evolving practice, it was a political compromise to include this in the guideline. No other mental health association has it. So it was bound to be politically abused. And it was. It was used in the Trump presidency to exclude mental health experts from commenting on the mental health of the president, almost universally in the major media. And I think that had perhaps the most harmful effects in this presidency, because in fact, even Congress members were depending on us to educate the public. You may or may not recall, but about three months after the publication of our book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, which was an unprecedented New York Times bestseller of its kind, and it spoke really to the hunger on the part of the public to hear from experts. Within three months of its publication, we brought the topic of the president's mental health to the number one topic of national conversation. The public was incredibly delighted. They let it be known. And the media were receptive. They were appropriate. I was invited to all the major Uh, cable and network programs. And that was when the APA stepped in. 
aggressively, not through any legitimate means, as I told you, not by going through an ethics committee. I'm not even obligated to keep with their rules since I'm not a member since 2007. I resigned because of their pharmaceutical industry ties. and But they did this through public campaigns. And look what has happened with the presidency. This could have ended in early 2018, potentially, because it really was a concern on the part of lawmakers, the public, and the media. So let me back you up just a little bit. I've read the book that you edited, the collection of essays by mental health professionals of various types about the president. I've said many times in the kind of colloquial language that there's something wrong with the guy but I don't have the training to identify it. As I read through it, I read different people saying things like, well, he has manifest psychological disorders. He's a narcissist. He's an impaired individual. He has delusions of grandeur. He has sociopathic traits. He has mental disturbance. He tries to have this kind of charismatic authority. He's a present hedonist. He's got narcissistic personality disorder. He's got pathological narcissism. He's paranoid. He's a sociopath. He's a malignant narcissist. He's evil and crazy. He's a sadist. He's got some kind of delusional disorder. He has a hypomanic temperament. He's a pathological liar. He's got some kind of incapacity. He's a histrionic personality disorder. He's dangerous. Many of those are terms of art in your world. It's awful to even be thinking that your president might have some or all of these characteristics. I can't help but as a close observer of him think he does. There's something wrong with a guy. What would you say is your feeling after meeting with these people, after putting together a book and editing what they wrote and then having some time pass? Do you think that sort of the general judgment there was on? Have you amended it since? We have had no need to amend any part of our assessment, so much so that I regret that that is the case, because uh, we would love to have been wrong. We predicted that the presidency was more dangerous than people suspected, that it would grow more dangerous with time and without intervention that he could become uncontainable. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, he followed even our exact timeline. In the beginning, we did not know there would be a pandemic, but we did say were there to be a crisis, he would disastrously mismanage it and make it far deadlier than it needed to be. So as soon as we found out about the coronavirus, we uh, did put out statements that the death toll will eventually reflect more of his mental state than the characteristics of the virus. This was in early February, and uh, that turned out to be true. We created now a blow-by-blow account of what we said uh, would happen with the pandemic and what actually happened. If you had to summarize what's wrong with a guy, what would it be? So you mentioned a lot of the characteristics that we tried to outline. Uh, That was all without making a diagnosis, because eventually a diagnosis is not what matters, but do all these defects altogether rise to the level of dangerousness and unfitness? Those are the assessments. Those are also mental health assessments that are of concern to the public. We uh, had accumulated the evidence in the first book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, uh, in 2017, but we actually had the full evidence um, that we would need to create a standardized, conclusive evaluation in April 2019 when the Mueller report came out. So we actually did a fitness exam. The Mueller report may not have been enough to indict a president, but it was certainly exactly the kind of information we would need to do a a capacity evaluation of the highest caliber 
uh, especially with sworn testimony by his close associates and co-workers, and we found that he lacked every criterion for mental capacity, and that means he would be unfit for any job, let alone president. So we already knew that he would not be able to handle a crisis, he would not be able to handle defeat of an election. All that was spelled out for us definitively in April 2019, but our conjecture in 2017 also turned out to be right on the mark without any deviation from what turned out to be. I can imagine that a lot of people would very much disagree with this characterization. You know, he had a lot of followers in the general populace. Do you think that someone could put together a group of mental health professionals who would conclude that he's all right? I imagine you could fish them out, but over the last four years, I've encountered only two people who would say he is not dangerous and unfit. It was a medical consensus from the start. The difference of a medical decision is that it is not based on personal preferences or political bias, but based on a systematic course of making an evaluation based on the information that is available. So when we hold case conferences, people can disagree, but eventually we come to an agreement, or at least an agreement about what we know and cannot know based on the information that is available. So we had an abundant amount of information to start simply because he's been such a publicly exposed figure over decades. And uh, we had far more information available on him than most patients, in fact, whereas we would not have had a brain scan or electroencephalogram to rule out medical conditions as we would require to make a diagnosis. We certainly had enough information to figure out whether he was dangerous or not and whether he had the capacity to, to do the job of president. Many of these are actually somewhat trained observations because perhaps the most valuable contributions mental health professionals can make and probably are obligated to make is to distinguish for the public what is normal and what is abnormal in a diseased way in a disordered or dangerous way, uh, because human health is of such wide variation and flexibility and choice and freedom that we actually uh, would have a hard time commenting on uh, what a healthy person would do or what choices are valid or not. In fact, it's not even our domain. It's none of our business. When we treat patients, we allow them to reach their potential as human beings to be able to make those free choices. But once they fall into the realm of disorder, of pathology, then their characteristics become rigid and stereotypical, very predictable, because it's no longer their own mind. It's the disease taking over. And the problem with disease is that it brings about damage, destruction, and eventually death. Uh, so unlike healthy choices, which are always life-affirming, you may make, make uh, mistakes here and there, but they are in general productive, affirming of life regardless of ideology. It almost doesn't have to do with ideology from uh, a health perspective. But when you have someone who is making disordered choices even if they insist that it is their own will, uh, it ends up being destructive and damaging to the person. And that's one of the reasons why um, in our nation of civil liberties that uh, in addition to law enforcement restricting people's freedom, we have mental health professionals restricting people's freedom, usually even before they've acted things out because you can tell if they're psychological disposition is 
destructive, then, then it's actually beneficial for them, for their own freedom to intervene. And actually, um, they may go kicking and screaming, but once you treat them, they come back and thank you for freeing them, which gives you a sense of how relieved they are to be released from that condition. And I believe that that applies to uh, a lot of the Trump supporters, especially those who are adhering to him against their own interest and health and even life. I got the sense from several of your authors that his abnormality helped him in certain regards form a bond with those people who, who end up following him, that, that there's ways in which he and other, I don't know, narcissistic leaders have, someone had a lock and a key metaphor, I can't remember who. How do we understand that relationship? I'm guessing some of it is that it varies hugely, that some people support him for less disordered reasons and some for more. That's right. Pathological attractions, that is, uh, you know, certain disorders attract other people of the same disorder, that can be magnetic and irresistible in ways that can whip up incredible irrational support and undying loyalty, but is actually destructive. The author you mentioned is Dr. Gerald Post, who often talks about charismatic leader-follower relationships, and that's very important, I believe, where pathology actually helps the person to garner uh, fervent support in ways that no rational strategy can. But that is also why pathology should be kept out of the political sphere, because if it's given equal platform as healthy proposals, then uh, pathology would have a much greater edge because it's almost like a bulldozing effect where the emotional drive just overcomes every uh, rational attempt at trying to reason with a person. In courts and in legal cases, mental health is a prerequisite. Mental capacity is required for all decision-making. I believe it should be the same in politics. Well, it seems like an awfully tricky thing to find a way to bring that in. The system of governance is voters making judgments about whether or not they want a particular leader. The idea of some subset of mental health professionals gatekeeping that rather than voters seems potentially really undemocratic and certainly could be used in a terrible way as well as in a good way. How could you possibly fit that in? Yes, I'm in agreement that uh, a group of so-called experts should not intervene and interject in between the electoral process. But for the democratic process to occur in fully formed ways, uh, the electorate should be educated and informed. Access to facts and access to expertise, I believe, are critical. And when that access is truncated, that is a sign of authoritarianism. That is why when the American Psychiatric Association changed the Goldwater rule to create a gag order, uh, a new rule, in fact, that no mental health professional member or not could speak about a public figure at all was for me an alarming sign of authoritarianism. And I was right. That was the impetus of my dropping everything and believing that I needed to do something and um, break out of my comfortable sphere as a clinician and academic uh, but rather our country was at stake and uh, societal health, in fact, public health, the public's mental health was at, at stake. Uh, that's why the very next month I held the conference at Yale School of Medicine on ethics, the ethics of speaking up and our societal responsibility. So I believe that in order to have a healthy democracy, we have to have all intellectuals, 
who are also citizens to contribute to society through their gifts, because already experts are being consulted and made use of, expertise is being made use of by all the um, special interest groups. We are certainly being used by those with wealth and power to hire us, and that's where psychological techniques play into marketing and even politics and propaganda. So the public should also have access to expertise in ways that would be helpful to its independence and freedom and ability to make informed decisions. You have to have gotten even more invested in this by having that meeting about ethics and putting together a book and and being interviewed so very frequently about it. As the presidency went forward, how did watching him affect you? How did you, what, what was your lens on it as we go from that point to now? Well, I mean, nothing about the presidency surprised me except the concern that nothing was being done. And because I saw the full dangers of the presidency from the first day, I couldn't really rest. It wasn't so much the investment I put into it. I mean, we donated all proceeds of the book uh, to public causes in order to not have any conflicts of interest. I never did this for any reason other than public health and safety. So it did concern me as it persisted uh, as it dragged on because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was concerned that the psychological dangers would soon translate into social, cultural, civic, and geopolitical dangers with the passage of time uh, and the spread of pathology, which I often phrase as shared psychosis. It's simply a phenomenon of mental symptom contagion where if you have a severely mentally impaired person in an influential position, their symptoms spread in the population by accentuating existing pathologies, but also spreading pathologies to previously healthy individuals. Delusions, paranoia, and violence proneness are particularly contagious. It spreads to the point where those who are previously healthy look exactly as if they have the disordered person's same condition. Uh, the treatment of that is removal of exposure and, uh, in fact, removal of the person from power. So that's why I was eager to see that happen. Unfortunately, because we had no public influence after the American Psychiatric Association's intervention, the media had to substitute political pundits for us, and we always had to cringe as they underestimated the dangers and normalized pathology and uh, what we were concerned about. A malignant normality setting in is uh, eventually what happened. So as we were in the run-up to the election, why were you not able to be on television talking about that or what happened there? Why were they substituting pundits in? Why were you and your co-authors not prominently saying, uh, time to move on from this guy? Yes. Well, we were actually in the thousands by that point. We've all gathered under uh, the umbrella of the World Mental Health Coalition, which uh, started with the Yale conference. We were eager to speak, but no one would have us on. I've been invited over 70 times to cable programs on CNN, MSNBC, and even network programs. All of them were canceled, but two at last minute. Producers were inviting us. Um, reporters were interviewing us, but it would never get aired. Only my quotes were deleted in New York Times articles, sometimes to the great surprise of the reporters who are seasoned reporters who generally have not had that happen to them. Why? A journalist told us that there might be something like a memo at the top of these all these agencies telling them that this can't happen. So when uh, some... So, so there's like a general policy in place right now? Yes, I was told that 
At least CNN had an informal policy. I was told by an insider that that was the case. The producers and reporters were exhausted at one point that they stopped inviting us all together. When I had one appearance in August of 2019, I nearly had a standing ovation. And they were telling us, finally, we got you here. Maybe this will be the start of more appearances. But then, of course, that was the last of it. Uh, and I expected it to be so because in March of 2019, we held a major interdisciplinary conference at the National Press Club in the ballroom, inviting top experts from all different areas, uh, law, psychiatry, political science, uh, history, journalism, climate science, nuclear science, social psychology, all different areas. 13 different experts on the same panel that was just really astonishing to everyone who was there. C-SPAN covered us in full, but no news agency would cover us giving the Goldwater rule as the reason. That's when I realized that the APA's intervention had that enormous an effect. This insignificant ethical guideline that no psychiatrist even cared about before this presidency became a household phrase for much of the public and for media organizations that they would give that as an excuse not to cover. Do you think that that these news organizations are being prudent and trusting the expertise of this organization of professionals? Or do you think there is a scandal here that the APA is, you know, responded to Trump backers or the medical establishment that is Republican or like what is going on behind this? When the APA first changed the Goldwater rule and a lot of psychiatrists were protesting it and resigning from the organization, in fact, the CEO of the APA came out and said to a group of members that they did it to protect federal funding. Because they would lose nonprofit status sort of thing? Or because they were worried about political retaliation by the administration? Exactly. They were afraid of retaliation. And in fact, since their intervention, they have seen enormous increases in federal funding in ways that they have not seen in perhaps 15 years. They changed their headquarters from Virginia to Washington, D.C. And even as their bleeding membership, and in fact, uh, I recently heard that a large portion of the members are refusing to pay dues in protest, and yet it doesn't matter to them because they are awash with federal funding. They played politics around the risk to the nation. And I believe what happened with them media organizations is that at first they listen to the APA because it's an authoritative association of the field. Um, It's one of the big two. So at first they thought this must be an important rule, but then they still were inviting us. And whenever they did an article of us, I think the APA followed up with them and either scared them or uh, intimidated them because articles that published us would be changed over time, even months after publication, taking out criticisms of the APA, removing descriptives of myself or my colleagues that called us renowned or eminent or gave us any more credibility they would take out. And I once did a video op-ed criticizing the APA on just these actions, and they would not be able to publish it for about five months. And eventually, when I got on their case about it, they did publish it changing some things around so that it sounded like I was complimenting the APA. So that's how I suspect that the APA has been active behind the scenes with the media organizations. But I, I, I don't have concrete proof, but the patterns do give, give an indication. I've read that you have a new book out, Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Why did you write another book and what's it about? I urgently wrote this book over the summer because I felt that the nation would need it following the election and uh, transition period, as well as healing the nation. So while most people were investing in the elections and uh, were relieved and put down their guard at the end of the election, I 
knew the disasters would only be beginnings. So I kind of prepare people for it. It is a complete psychological profile of Donald Trump in the context of his supporters and the nation. So I urge that the nation think of the three, the president, his supporters, and the rest of us as an ecology where the three parts are interdependent and whatever one of them do influences the other. So in other words, what Donald Trump does depends a lot on what we do and how we respond. So I was trying to prepare the nation that uh, he was not likely to accept election results, that he would declare them a fraud, and that he would refuse to leave office. I do state that in the book. I don't even entertain the scenario of his uh, winning the election or conceding results, or even his... uh, leaving peacefully. We may have just escaped his remaining in office. How do you understand his non-acceptance? Do you think he can't cope? Do you think he believes, Mary Trump said he can gaslight himself? Do you think he believes that he was cheated? Do you think he has to believe that he was cheated? Do you think it's a strategy to stay in power? What do you think underlies his work on that, which started in the summer and went through the election and continued to the so-called insurrection and beyond? Yes. So he didn't ever have the psychological makeup to be able to accept the scenario of his losing an election. He just does not have that capability. Uh, That has to do with his mental fragility. And that is why he has to even drive himself into delusions. When reality becomes so intolerable, you not only lie to others, you may begin by lying, but later on you convince yourself. I believe that's what she means by gaslighting himself. It eventually becomes a delusion because you simply emotionally cannot tolerate the alternative. And for someone who had such difficulty accepting any criticism, any hint of lack of approval, and had to call real news, fake news, and the enemy of the people in order to reject any bad comments about him, then, of course, losing an election is the ultimate repudiation and rejection of him by the nation. So he could never imagine that or never even consider that as a possibility. He would not let himself go there. So that is why he would create any scenario whatsoever of uh, voter fraud, of all scenarios of uh, suitcases and pouring in of uh, fake ballots, then to imagine that he lost and that he would be willing to drive the country to any extent, including civil war, waging an international war, or nuclear war. And even if he had to destroy himself and others, he would have gone that way then to be pushed into accepting this reality. There's something that rings true about that to me and something that I'm having a struggle with, which is he did an awful lot that's that's just weird, you know, with all of the lawsuits and the constant lying and, you know, just a continuation of his behavior and the bullying of public officials and the exhorting of the crowd to try to stop certification. But he has stopped short of some of the more extreme behaviors that you've just alluded to. Why do you think we escaped that? It's not because of constraints within him. As I said, what he does depends a great deal on us. In fact, he's more a follower than a leader. So you think the the White House counsel and the people around him and the reaction of the news media and other congressmen and all that has held him off? I think it's more the preparation. The preparation, the vigilance, 
we know that we just stopped short of a massacre of Congress members. If that had happened, uh, an FBI agent said that it was a miracle that we escaped that. And if that had happened, his his intent would have been realized. Uh, former White House Chief Ethics Counsel Richard Painter and I recently submitted a letter to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, advising him that he was determined not to listen to any illegal orders, but we had to buttress that with the possibility that he may try to give illegal orders, orders that would be illegal based on his psychology. So I think a lot of people doing this sort of thing, putting in safeguards and barriers in between that has made him not even attempt those directions. Many people think that because he is actually a coward, he can't even face people he's firing, that he can't be that violent an individual. But actually, the flip side of the most irrational violence is those who are inactive most of the time and are are cowardly. So he actually fits the profile of a violent individual or someone who would incite violence in ways that are far greater in magnitude than just physically assaulting someone one by one. To what extent do you think we are still at risk? The comebacks of other leaders, uh, Nixon after losing the presidential and then a governor's race and then coming back and winning the presidency some years later or Hitler coming out of prison and taking over. I mean, Trump retains a majority of the Republican Party. If a primary was coming up soon for the presidency, he'd probably carry it and get the nomination. And if you know, one could come up with a scenario where things were going badly enough for the country where we would switch again, do you think we're done with him and he's threatened to run again? What, what do you think the future holds based on how you, how you see him? Again, he is not going to disappear on his own. Maintaining his uh, source of adulation and public accolades is a source of his psychic survival. And therefore, he will not go away on his own. It depends on what we do. Are we out of the dangers? Not at all. Uh, I don't believe we are any better than we were in 2016, mainly because we never really contained uh, the dangers and never really educated ourselves. Just like the pandemic, if we contain it early and if we educate the public about the public health measures early on, then we can form the habits and uh, defend ourselves. But we haven't done that. Again, I blame largely the APA for that. Because when education, public education was critical, it blocked it. If anything, mental health has become a taboo, far more than it had been before. People don't know where to begin the conversation. And now the problem has become so uh, daunting, that even if news networks wanted to start the conversation, I think it would be just uh, so horrifying and difficult to go there. And uh, a psychologically unaware society is exactly the kind of society that is vulnerable to manipulation and vulnerable to the negative influences of pathology. I think we're very vulnerable for another uh, either Donald Trump or another Trump-like figure coming around and seizing the psychological vulnerability in the population, which will not wish to heal, which will not wish to recognize what happened with Donald Trump because uh, it will entail a lot of disillusionment and trauma because people uh, gave their lives and livelihoods and health and sometimes even their life believing in this presidency, and they were all misled. It sounds like you feel there's great damage inflicted to the country, that we've been infected by a Trump virus alongside of the coronavirus, and and that the nation is badly damaged. Is that, is that right? It's, 
a great analogy. I think the pandemic is a perfect analogy because it was something where if you intervened early on when the signs were there, when pandemic experts were telling us we needed to do something, uh, even before the onset of the pandemic, we had all the preparedness and the response systems that may have prevented a pandemic in the first place. But we dismantled all of them. We removed the CDC experts in China and the CDC was defunded to the point where it was ineffectual in the country, whereas in, in the past, it was relied upon by the entire world alongside the WHO. And so we have this situation where the same has happened with the mental health aspects. In the beginning, we might have been able to tell apart what was health versus pathology and to educate ourselves and protect ourselves. Now, pathology has taken over so much of our society and has taken dominance that how do you counter that when you can't even seize control of the narrative and tell what is truth versus untruth and what is uh, real news versus disinformation? It's all extremely troubling to contemplate for our country. Do you have a chance to talk to the Biden folks about this? And if you do or could, what would you tell them? Our organization's decision is to uh, retain our professional independence and to focus on what needs to be done purely from a scientific standpoint and not to get entangled with what is feasible in terms of what the Biden administration is prepared for. I believe he has a mental health nurse on his COVID-19 response team. The fact that he's not making the mental health issues front and center, even of the COVID crisis, is of concern because it's going to be the second pandemic not to mention the Trump pandemic that came before. So I don't have high expectations for this coming administration, but we will be forming a Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, through our organization to explore what happened, what went wrong, how we can heal as a society, how we can prevent dangerous leaders in the future, and how we can promote societal mental health which is a perilously neglected area. It sounds like there's a lot to, of work to be done on that, but what would your initial prescriptions be for societal mental health? I have recommended three steps in my profile of a nation. The first step is to remove the offending agent, the spreader of pathology, which is the, the influential figure with severe symptoms. There's a lot of sub lieutenants in that too, unfortunately, that aren't going to get removed. But yeah, go ahead. Right. Yes. But, but uh, starting with the most major figure, uh, Donald Trump was from the start a representative or a barometer of the state of societal mental health. Once he was in office, he was the greatest accelerator and a spreader of pathology. So, so he is still important. Secondly, to dismantle disinformation systems that serve as cultic programming or propaganda, mainly uh, in the right wing, such as Fox News or um, offshoots of Fox News, as well as the social media algorithms that radicalize people. And thirdly, is fixing the socioeconomic conditions that gave rise to the psychological vulnerability in the population in the first place that made the population vulnerable and attracted to pathological figures and to make choices that would not serve their interests and their health. Uh, so people don't think of socioeconomic conditions as giving rise to psychological problems, but they do, uh, most notably inequalities such as economic, gender, and racial inequalities. 
Is there a question that I didn't ask you that you'd like to answer? I think it should be emphasized that as daunting as the problem seems right now, health is eventually more powerful than any pathology. And the people have the greatest power, more so than all these forces and that we can protect our own health, and that protecting our own mental health is the beginning of our nation's healing. So everybody's got to take care of themselves first. Yes, I say in my profile of the nation, um, uh, just like a physician does for oneself, in an emergency, first check your own pulse, (laughs) check your state, check what you need, take care of yourself, and then you'll find the psychological and spiritual centering that will guide us and tell us what we need to do to take back our nation and recover its soul. Well, I am very appreciative that you took this uh, something of a detour in your career path to focus on such an important thing. I'm sure it's made a difference and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Is there anything else you want to say? No, just thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. That was Dr. Bandy Lee of Yale University. You can find her at bandylee.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.